Good morning. The last hymn before the speaker gets up. I don't know how the rest of them are, but it's, as I say, I'm always ever cognizant of the warning in James 3.1 that those who are teachers are held to a stricter condemnation. As an ambassador being sent forth, our desire, of course, is to speak the word of God in my prayer. And I hope you're praying for those who ascend to the platform. Oftentimes, we're the least worthy. The Lord will choose sometimes those to go speak so that they might themselves learn as they study. So I hope you remember to pray for those who come to the platform and speak to you. The last time I came to you and spoke, um, I spoke about the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, and I posited that the bride of Christ, I see it as a subset, that the bride of Christ comes out of the body of Christ, even as the body of Eve came out of the body of Adam. Now, whether or not uh, that's true, and there's good reason, of course, to question that, study the scripture on your own, it's patently obvious that we ought to be obedient. We ought to be like a, a betrothed woman who is keeping herself pure for her husband. And we looked at it from the standpoint of word pictures. Um, you know, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 essentially says the Bible is a difficult book. It's not received by natural man because it's spiritually discerned. Yet Isaiah 55 is still in the Bible, and God promises if we look at his word, we will be blessed by it. It does not go out and return again unto him void without accomplishing that which he sent it forth for. But it gives us word pictures that we, we might, in our earthly realm, begin to have a deeper understanding of who God is, who we are, and how we should relate to him. It, it, it speaks to prophecy. It, it speaks to uh, consequences. And we're going to do this again this morning. Last time we looked at uh, the bride of Christ. This morning I'd like to look at Israel as the wife of God. Now this might seem like a history lesson, but even the secular world looks at it this way. How does that go? Those who forget history are doomed to repeat its failures. Well, as Paul wrote in Romans, all, all scripture given beforehand, it's for our education, that through the perseverance and the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. Hope for what? Not, not just a, a good outcome, but for a proper path, and we should learn. So we're going to look at Israel this morning as the wife of God. And again, it's not just a history lesson. There's much that we can derive from this. I'll say right up front, the church is not the new Israel. We have not replaced the church. I've spoken to that end before uh, concerning reform theology, replacement theology. And I remember William MacDonald saying, being asked, and he said, if there was two things that I could tell you that would make it easier for you to understand scripture, one of them would be that the church and Israel are separate entities. What bothers me is he never said what the other second one was. I've always wondered about that. But we're going to look at Israel as the wife of Jehovah uh, this morning. Father, we do ask that by the power of your spirit, you would guide us into truth, that you would not allow me as the one who's standing here to speak foolish words or words which do not represent your heart and the intent that you desire to impart to us this morning. We pray that uh, all words would be to your glory and it would be to the edification of the saints and the building up that we each as individual followers in Christ would come to know him better and to know you and to be, have the boldness to be obedient and pleasing to you. 
We ask this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Um, as I looked at the scriptures concerning this, and there's, there's really quite a few of them, um, we're going to spend some time. You might want to thumb it now because I'm going to jump around quite a bit. Um, Deuteronomy 3 and 5, Jeremiah 3 and 31, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2, and Isaiah, briefly in Isaiah uh, 54. As I looked at these scriptures and uh, then considered what learned men had written about them, I came across some work by Arnold Fruchtenbaum, a, a Jew who is a believer in Jesus as Messiah. And uh, it, it seemed convenient to use a, a, an outline that he had uh, set forth, so I want to give him credit for this. Um, six stages, essentially, in the, the wedding, the marriage, between Jehovah and Israel, the marriage contract, then the adultery, then a, a brief time of separation, uh, the divorce, fifth, the, uh, a punishment poured out upon uh, Israel for being playing the harlot. But the glorious sixth stage is the restoration of not just the marriage, but restored blessings and an eternal, everlasting covenant. Um, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses takes um, the preceding three books and rolls them together. We call it the second law, but it's also um, uh, looked at by the, the Jewish rabbis down through the millennia as a marriage contract. Um, blessings and warnings. We're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and read a few verses there and then jump to Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 5, uh, starting with verse 1, then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord made this covenant with our, did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. Jumping to Deuteronomy 6, next chapter over, verse 10 through 15. He's going to, God makes some promises and announces his jealousy over his wife, Israel. Verse 10, then it shall come about that when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth." And as I pointed out, the Jewish rabbis have always considered this uh, a, a, a covenant of marriage. And we'll see later on, uh, God uses the term applied to Israel as the harlotous wife, the adulterous wife, and himself as being a husband unto her. Let's go to Jeremiah 3. While you're turning to Jeremiah 3, I'm going to read a, one verse out of Ezekiel 16 for now. We'll spend quite a bit of time there later. Turn to Jeremiah 3, but in Ezekiel 16, 8, the Lord says this, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. 
So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. So we have the marriage covenant. There's many other verses. We don't have time. Although I know that Nick gave back, I think, seven minutes last time I was here, and I might take that this morning. Um, stage two, the great adultery. And again, Scripture, there, there are... We could spend all day reading them. But in Jeremiah 3, there's, a, there's a really a, a convicting um, set of verses here, beginning with verse 1, Jeremiah 3. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore, the showers have been withheld and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me, my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk but you do all the evil you can. If we jump down to uh, Jeremiah 3, verse 20, Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says Jehovah. You know, uh, we're going to, don't turn to it, we're going to go there later, but in Jeremiah 31, um, when he's giving this promise of a new covenant, he makes mention in Jeremiah 31, 32 that um, not a, the new covenant, the everlasting was not going to be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband unto them, said Jehovah. Well, we'll stay in, uh, in Jeremiah 3, um, but I'm just going to mention briefly Isaiah chapter 50. If the first stage was the marriage contract and the second stage was their harlotry, uh, and I'm not going to go into, uh, like I said, there's, there's so many passages we could turn to, and some of them are, are, are graphic. Some of them are so graphic that I would have great pause, particularly in Ezekiel, to even publicly use them. I mean, we should preach all Scripture. I'm not saying we shouldn't. God doesn't use graphic language for pure shock value. He uses it to draw our attention and let us know how serious a problem is. Um, as Ruthenbaum points out, and I really had to look at this for a minute, but there's a separation without a writ of divorce. In Isaiah 50, Jehovah actually asks, where is the writ of divorce that I've written? At this point, he hasn't written it, but he is moving away from it, much like Ezekiel 10, where the, the, the Spirit of the Lord moves out of the temple to the front, to the gate of the city, and to the hill, and then finally departs. Continuing on in Jeremiah 3 at verse 6, we move into stage 4, the divorce. The idea of the separation and the warnings was to bring about repentance. It didn't happen. So it goes to the next stage, and God issues a bill of divorcement. Jeremiah 3, starting with verse 6. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought... After she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. 
And, all, and I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. It talks about in, in verse 9 that, that because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Those are idols, things made of hands. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. You know, the reality is you could look at almost all of the book of Jeremiah as a writ of divorce. Stage five is the punishment. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, again, there's much written in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16. Uh, the, the descriptions of her harlotry uh, go from verse 15 to, to 34, but we're going to start reading what is um, the consequences of her harlotry in Ezekiel 16, 35. He says, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore... Behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. So I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. Thus I will judge you like a woman who commits adultery or shed blood. Now they are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you over into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you. My jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord God, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. The point of the punishment is not just so God can pour out wrath and judgment, although they deserve it, but it's also to get them to stop their sinning. Let's go to Hosea um, 2, just, just briefly. Hosea 2, and we'll come back again to this chapter a little later, but Hosea 2, the purpose of the punishment is to show Israel that her true husband is whom she needs, and that's where she lived in a land of blessing, and the hand of God protected them. Hosea chapter 2, uh, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. Uh, it goes on through uh, a few more verses speaking about the punishment and how he's going to do away with all that she had that was a blessing. 
We're going to go back to Jeremiah 3 again. Like I said, we're going to jump around, and I apologize. You can review the recording later. Gratefully, Claremont Bible Chapel puts it on, on the website. And there are some other speakers that you'd probably be better listening to, but since I jump around quite a bit, um, it can help you go back and follow some of these scriptures because you should read them in context. You should dig through and see the full portrayal of this. We just don't have time to flesh it out this morning. You know, the punishment of Israel ends up being a very long, um, arduous affair and is painful, uh, but there is a continual call to repentance. In Jeremiah 3, verse 11, um, it starts, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree. And have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. A glorious promise. He says, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, that they will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from, from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Calling for repentance with the promise of blessing. And we see in this, of course, the prophecy we're witness today that what was spoken of in, in Ezekiel 36, the regathering of Israel in 37, in the valley of, of dry bones. We look today and Israel is gathered together. Judah and the, and the house of Israel walking together, one nation. I don't have the breath of life in them yet. That will happen when they look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only son. But we see this prophecy playing out. You know, as I said, replacement theology. We not only say rubbish to that, we ask, what Bible are you reading? How can you not see these promises? Here is the promise of not only the restoration of, of Israel, but the millennial reign of Christ. These promises have not been fulfilled. Where has the son of David sat on his father's throne? That hasn't happened. The millennium is going to occur. There's going to be this restoration of Israel. And that's where we'll move to next, Jeremiah chapter 31. Again, we've been witness to the marriage, the adultery, the separation, the divorce, the punishment. Stage six is the, is the remarriage with restored blessings. Mentioned briefly, uh, Jeremiah 31. Uh, we're going to start at Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant. You know, God did not leave the Jews in a hopeless castaway position. The prophets spoke of a coming day when Israel would be the restored wife of God. You know, Isaiah asked, can a nation be born in a day? And on May 14, 1948, that happened. 
And one day, they're going to be restored, the restored people of God. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then they will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God has to make a new marriage covenant contract with the house of Israel because he had issued a writ of divorce. Israel did not go off and become married to another. She played the harlot, chasing after many other gods and all the peoples around her. But here's the promise of restoration. If we go back to Ezekiel 16, starting at verse 60, the remarriage contracts also described there. Ezekiel 16, verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. This I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. The Lord God declares. Let's turn to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. Again, there's some, uh, a great description here of the restoration of Israel as Jehovah's wife. Isaiah 54. Great celebration. Isaiah 54, verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread out abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. He's having to tell them, you didn't take out enough of a plot of land there. I'm going to give you more, more, more. Spread out. Much greater. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Can we not see ourselves in that? When we were called out of sin and out of the pit? Let's go back to Hosea chapter 2. There's a further description of the remarriage in Isaiah 64, but... I don't want to take the time. Hosea chapter 2, 
picking it back up again at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there. And the valley of Achor is a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali. For I will remove the name of the Baals from your mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. That's not just a history lesson. It's also prophetic. Some of this has not yet happened, but it's underway. What should we learn from all this? Obviously, God has an everlasting love for Israel. He even said to the, the wicked prophet Balaam, he says, I am not a man that I should lie, neither am I the son of man that I should change my mind. He's made everlasting covenants. He's made promises. God keeps his promise, unlike us. He keeps his promise. Even when we're faithless, yet he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's foolishness to deny God's faithfulness. But God does expect us to reciprocate, to demonstrate love, and we do that in no small way by being obedient. And we surely rejoice over the restoration of Israel, but dare we ignore the warnings that are also latent in the message for us? God is immutable. His nature does not change. Some of the details and how he deals in particular details with people may change. There is a difference between the church and Israel. But the nature of God doesn't change. We should see that there's warnings in here for us. Disobedience is costly. We break the heart of God, and though his desire is always to bring about repentance, sometimes we, our hearing is not so good. C.S. Lewis, I think, once said it this way. God whispers to us in our joys. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts at us in our tribulations. And sometimes we're so hard of hearing that the Lord has to get heavy-handed with us. I believe the picture of Israel being set aside for a season and then restored to blessing speaks to us as well. Is it possible that there's going to be saints in Christ who are set aside? You've heard me say it before. I suspect... I wouldn't be dogmatic about it. I suspect there's going to be believers who are set aside for the millennial reign of Christ, like the servants that Jesus spoke of in the, the talents of the faithless servants who hid their talents. But even if that's not the case, it still speaks to us that disobedience is costly. Do we really think that the Lord God treating his wife Israel in, in what we might say is harsh, but they deserved it, that he would really treat us different? Yes, our sins are forgiven. 
But if I sin today, though my sin is paid for and I will dwell forever in the presence of the glory of God, I may well suffer the consequences of sin in this life. And that's what these warnings uh, give to us. Uh, I'm going to go a little different tact uh, this morning. I originally was going to jump from here into the letter to the Hebrews and talk about some of the warnings in chapter 2 and in uh, chapter 6 along these lines. But uh, I'm going to go a little, little different direction. You know, we sang that last hymn. We sang, it's the work of the Lord alone that brings us salvation. And I, I want to give the gospel. I want to give a gospel message. And I would ask this. Um, if God dealt so harshly with the people of Israel, his wife, how is he going to deal with those who utterly reject him and who reject his son and reject the offer of life through the sacrifice which Jesus has made for the entire world? So uh, let's... Let's look at what the Bible says to that end. Who's the gospel for? Well, Scripture tells us it's for everybody. In Ezekiel 18, we might say, why would God deal harshly with people or what gives him the right? Well, he's the creator, and he tells us in Ezekiel 18:4, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father and the soul of the Son, and that soul which sins, that soul must die. But you know, in that very same chapter, if you go to the end of it, I believe it's verse 32, he says, you know, I, I, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn from your wicked ways and live. He repeats it again in, in, in uh, Ezekiel 33. Even with an oath, he says to the prophet, tell him this, even as I live, saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Why will you die? Turn from your wicked ways and live. His heart is always to call all to repentance. You go towards the end of the Bible, 2 Peter 3, 9, you know, he tells us there's going to come scoffers who say, you know, you've been saying this forever, he's coming back. Where is his coming? All things remain the same. The Lord says, I'm, I'm just delaying because I want more people to come to repent. I desire that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And Paul writing to Timothy said, this is good and well-pleasing to God our Savior who wills all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And there's another dagger in the heart of, of those who would say the elect are just the few that God has chosen to save. The call goes out to all. He wills all men to be saved, but he won't force us. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, he says, Turn unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth. In Hebrews 2.9, he says, Jesus, we sang about it, he's tasted death, tasted death for all. He's tasted death that we might have life. What did Jesus tell us to do in John 3? He says, you must be born again. You must be born again. He told the, the teacher of the Jews, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, the Jews had used that term. I don't know why Nicodemus played as if he didn't know. He used baptism and talked about being born again into the, the Jewish faith. It's not talking about physical birth. It's spiritual you know, there's a judgment coming, and that warning is also there in John chapter 3. Let, let's, let's jump and read it. The most famous verse in the Bible, which even the heathens, and mostly in this country, can say it because they've heard it so many times. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I'm reading from the New American Standard and quoting the King James. <laughs> um, I laugh about that. But what's funny in this here? Just like God gave to Israel blessings and cursings. For the one who believes, he's not condemned. For the one who believes not, remains condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten, the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, when it comes to sin, no sin is ever forgiven. Does that sound like a shocking statement? But that's what scripture clearly bears out. No sin is ever forgiven. Every single sin must be paid for. And perhaps also surprising, there are two people who can pay for your sins. Two people. You can pay for your sin and I can pay for mine. But if we take that foolish choice, we do it forever in a place we don't want to be, the lake of fire. The only other people, person available to pay for your sin is Jesus Christ. And that's because he has no sin of his own to pay for. That makes him available to pay for mine. But he's also infinite, so he's available to pay for yours and yours and yours. Well, who's the sinner? Well, you're all sinners. I've done this before. I pointed at you. That's true. You're all sinners. And those of you who are astute or have heard this before say, Brother, you've got three fingers pointing right back at yourself. We're all in the same boat. It's not who's better than the person sitting next to them. It's how do you stack up against God? That's where this passage in John chapter 3 comes in. God so loved us, he gave his son to die for us. How can we refuse that? We could go to the, the book of Romans in the Roman road to salvation. Um, chapters 1 and 2 portray that there is a blessed gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. All who believe. But it paints a pretty dire picture of mankind in our hearts. Even though we knew God, we turned away from him, denied him. We desire to worship the created thing rather than the one who created it. We come up with all sorts of excuses on how we look inward. You know, an atheist is, does not, not believe in God. He believes that he himself is God. He worships himself. That's why April's Fools is their day of their, their religious holiday. They're worshiping their own self. But that's the case for all mankind. Romans chapter 3 begins to go in. It, verse 10, it tells us that there's no, no one's good. No, not one. None is righteous. And of course, it finishes off with that verse, Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what the word all means there really is all. Completely inclusive. Again, there, there's no way to, to wiggle around that. It is the entirety of mankind save Jesus Christ. For Hebrews tells us he, he came into this world and suffered and was tempted as us, yet without sin. That's why, as I say, he who knew no sin was made to become our sin, that we might become his righteousness in God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that unfair trade. Because Romans 5.12 says that sin came into this world through one man and through sin, death, and so death came to all men. When I'm out witnessing to people on the street, they say, I think it's unfair that we get tagged with sin just because Adam sinned. 
Well, it might seem unfair, but how about this? God has made an even more unfair trade later on, and he offers it to you because it's in your benefit. And I think you'd be foolish not to take it up. And I tell him about 2 Corinthians 5.21. He's taken my sin, and he's given, it to his, he's given it to his son Jesus, and he's taken the righteousness of Jesus, and he's given it to me. I don't deserve that. That's a pretty good deal. Because of sin, we get that dire pronouncement in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. God's a, a perfect accountant. He's, no bill is going to go unpaid. But gloriously, that verse has a second part to it. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's hope. In the, that's why this is all good news. I mean, even going to the doctor and getting bad news, but if you, if you get the bad news identifying what's wrong, now there's hope for treatment. If you deny there's anything wrong and you don't seek treatment, the, the disease runs its course, and that's the way it is for us with sin. The law can't save us. It just points us to the fact that we're already lost. It's, it's our tutor. It is to lead us to Christ. God demonstrates his love toward us, it says in Romans 5, 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, I've told you before about a young man who gave his life in battle. Who could have just stepped through a door and saved his life? because a grenade had hit him in the chest and bounced into the room. But there were eight other men in that room. No hope of, of escape. This young man fell on that grenade, gave his life. That is not the picture of what Christ has done for me. No, that picture would have been if Mike would have run outside and fallen on the grenade to save the life of the guy who threw it. Because I was the enemy of God. Christ died for me. He was put on that cross. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up because of our transgressions. But it continues on. He was resurrected. He was raised up because of our justification. That's when God looked at me and he said, not guilty, but I am guilty. He only said that because I put my faith in Christ. It is not any works that these hands have done. It's a work of Christ alone, my Savior, who has saved me. What's the result of what took place in Romans 4.25? Delivered up and raised up. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the first verse of Romans chapter 5 tells us. That's what it's obtained for us. That chapter is all about we have life. We who were dead, Ephesians 2 verse 1, we, you being dead in your sins and trespasses, we're stillborn when we're born. Alive in the flesh, we're dead in the spirit. Romans chapter 8 is a glorious chapter. If I had one chapter, I've often said that would be the one I would take with me. It begins with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with there's no separation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And it's filled with glorious blessings, how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, how he teaches us to pray and prays for us, seals us, and there's the promise for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're told that if you've been justified, you've been glorified. You can't lose your salvation once you've got it. It's all in the past tense. It's already a done deal. Romans 10, the evangelism chapter, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's why we read so much scripture here at the Bible chapel. You know, you shouldn't trust my words. 
You're going to listen, and if it leads you to the Scripture, and if I'm submitting to the Spirit, the will of the Lord, I'm going to speak forth His truth. But the only truth I can guarantee is when you're reading Scripture. That's what we look at is the foundational truth. I've got lots of ideas. And when I meet Christ at Bema, he's going to say, Russ, Russ, how did you get that from this? I know that. I pursue what I think the Spirit leads me into. And you should do likewise. You have the truth in front of you. If we believe this is the word of God, how can we not study it? And when we see things, we ought to pray for the boldness, the courage to be obedient. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The same chapter in verse 13 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel said that. And they're quoting Moses in Deuteronomy. I forget the, the address of the verse. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The net result of all of that is it frees God's hand no sin is ever forgiven. But when we look upon all this truth that has been given us and we respond and the conscience that God has given us and hopefully your parents have helped you to sharpen and strengthen, that conscience leads you to the goodness of God who calls you to repentance and promises to give you blessings. But it also tells you there are curses awaiting you if you refuse this free gift. It frees God up to do what's spoken of him in Romans 3.26. Therefore, God can be both just, the sins paid for. Therefore, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The sin has been paid for. But it's not efficient. It's not efficacious. It's not effective until I accept it. Because God is a gentleman. He will not twist our arms. He will beg. He will plead. He will set up roadblocks in our path to keep us from marching into hell. But in the end, choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day. You know, Jesus puts words of finality on on what he'd been talking about in John chapter 3 and what is spoken to us in these other verses in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, meaning th this is truth. This is uttered. Everything Jesus said is truth. But for emphasis, he said, truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has everlasting life. It's in the past tense. Has everlasting life. Will not come into judgment, but has already passed from death unto life. Now, I've added already, but that's what the Greek is saying. You've already passed from death unto life. Again, the finality, the surety, the guarantee, the promise. I am not a man that I should lie. I am not a son of man that I should change my mind. God has made a promise. It's God holding on to me, not me holding on to God that guarantees that I will be taken to heaven when I die. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Most of us never know the day when it is coming. Some of us have been at times when we thought, now is the moment. I'm going to die. We don't know, but there is an appointment set. God knows the end 
from the beginning. He knows the end of man. How long do you have? When is your appointment? If you don't know for sure what's going to happen to you when you die, it's not safe for you to die. This is something that needs to be settled now. I said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We take that, and I know there was a dear brother who stood here on the stage and said, if somebody doesn't preach Christ to them, they're never going to come to salvation. But I want to re relate something to you that happened to me about a week and a half ago. Many of you know I've got the green monster. My Ford Aerostar van is in the shop for a long time, and it's going to be the only hot rod Aerostar on the planet, I'm sure. But I've been renting a car at an enterprise nearby, and uh, there's a young man there named Tyson. Pray for him. He's recently separated from the Navy. I've been witnessing to him. But because I rented it on a holiday last time, I had to go to the airport. And there was a young man who took me out to gather up the car. And as we walked out and we were talking, uh, I discerned that he was of Middle Eastern uh, extraction. And we talked, and he asked me what I was doing with the car. And I said, I'm driving up by Vandenberg Air Force Base, going to park it uh, in a compound and fly out to the oil platform on which I work. And so we got talking about that, and I asked him a few questions. and. He said that he was hoping to join the Air Force very shortly and become a pilot. So we talked some about that. And seeing an open door, I asked him, I says, you know, that's great, that's wonderful, I, I, and I, I wish you well in it. He says, but you know, there are hazards for those that pursue flying, and particularly for military pilots. I said, have you ever thought, this is going to seem a strange or presumptuous question, but have you ever thought about what's going to happen to you when you die? And without batting an eyelash, he says, Jesus Christ is going to take me to heaven. Now, I, that's a great answer. But so is I. I'm a Christian, but I never let those answers stand. I asked him, why? Why is Jesus Christ going to take you to heaven? And he says, because he died and paid for my sins. And I put up my hand. I says, put her there, brother. I says, you know what the bad news is? You're going to have to put up with me for all eternity because I'm going to. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I asked him, I said, how did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And this is when he told me, he says, he says you know, uh, I'm Arab. Nobody in my family is a Christian. Pray for them. He says, but I knew there was more. I was looking. Who is Jesus? And he sent me visions. And that led him. I didn't, because he's on on the clock and working. I didn't want to take up too much time. I do have his name. We're going to get together. He's, that led him to other believers, and he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He attends Sandals Church in Riverside, and he goes to another one in downtown L.A., and he's anxious to get together. The point I'm making here is God is reaching out to everybody, and when we fail, God is able and faithful to provide a way. I know a guy's coming back from the, uh, Iraq, in Afghanistan who have been talking about how entire villages at times have visions because the gospel is not getting to them. The Lord is reaching out. So I'd ask, is he reaching out to you this morning? Is there somebody here who does not know for sure what's going to happen to you when you die? We don't give altar calls here. We don't have you raise your hand. We'd rather you be motivated by conviction with God. But having said that, I'll remain behind. I'd be glad to talk to anybody. All of the people in this room that are going to heaven at some time have talked to somebody else. And if you have any doubts, they're not going to think any less of you for seeking to have 
uh, a greater knowledge and an understanding. Uh, maybe you have doubts about your salvation. We can talk about that too. The whole point is it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Just like I talked about learning from the example of what, how Israel behaved and how they were promised of restoration, we have that promise of spending all eternity in the presence of glory of God, but that can only occur if you've come to the point where you recognize you needed a Savior. It is so simple we tend to ignore it. That doesn't mean it's easy, because if you're like me, you have a pride issue, and it's a, quite a bellyful. We have to swallow our pride, but that's all it takes. Don't let pride prevent you from coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we, we love you and we love your Son. We have sought this morning to dig into your word, to understand your heart towards us, to all mankind, and we see this continuing outpouring of love and concern, your desire, your will, is that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray that we've been faithful this morning in speaking your words. We pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would give boldness and courage to believers to carry on for your son, to speak well of him, to bear good witness. We pray that if there's any who does not know your son as Savior, that you would also speak to their hearts. You would give them boldness that they might settle it this morning. Your son has paid for their lives. He deserves the glory of them being amongst that throng as we spoke of this morning, singing praises, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To Jesus Christ be all, all honor and glory. And in his name we pray.